I doubt if I'm the only person this time of year who has all the pipes clogged up with pollen or something that's in the air. So I hope the sermon, the process of a sermon, you know, has a wonderful way of clearing that out. But uh, it's not cleared out right at the moment. So be patient with me. And I might be sipping water here too. But uh, we'll get through things. I'm reading from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, as we've been studying this gospel, now we come to the drama of the arrest of Jesus Christ and the first phase of what was a three or four phase trial, or really would be better to call it an inquest, held a hearing, held about him and trying to summarize things about him which were very disorganized and in many cases against the law, the way it was being done. But let us hear this important narrative from Matthew as we read God's Word. Listen while I read Matthew 26, beginning at 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, One of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say, It must happen in this way. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Peter followed at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath By the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. 
But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you. And this is the word of God. Father, may we in this scene of shame and intense suffering by our Lord learn that which would strengthen and establish us to live in a hostile world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This strange war on terrorism that our country's been engaged in now for quite a few years has brought America difficult adjustments in our thinking. In any time of war in the past, we knew that our troops were on the soil of some country fighting against armies of one or more other particular nations who wore distinctive uniforms, who could be identified. We knew, in other words, what the enemy looked like. Today, we have to adjust ourselves to the idea that our enemy might be strolling around in the suburban shopping mall here in Lancaster. It grabbed my attention to hear on a news broadcast this past week that there actually are some Islamic terror cells training children as young as four years of age to be suicide bombers. This means there's a whole new definition of enemies. We even have to look in the kindergartens to find them. Learning to fight an unseen and nearly unrecognizable enemy is a confusing and unnerving thing. If you would read the book of Psalms, looking for the mention of the word enemies, you actually will be surprised at how much you will find. I tried it, reading quickly through the, or really scanning through the first 50 Psalms. And I don't think there was hardly a page on which I did not find something being said in each or most of the Psalms about my enemies. King David is particularly frank on the subject. He speaks in unrestrained language. Psalm 17 is a typical word when he asks, O Lord, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who assail me. From mortal enemies who surround me, they are like lions, hungry for prey. Now, you know, with David, those were not always soldiers armed with weapons. Many times they were political opponents or even individuals within his own court and his own city. There are times when David or another psalmist is in a very low mood and feeling overcome by people who oppose them, and they They pray for shocking things. Just a few of the phrases you can find when when one psalmist says, rain fiery coals and burning sulfur upon my enemies. Another time, 
break their teeth in their mouth, O Lord. And then the prayer, may they, like a stillborn child, never see the sun. Certainly, we find in the Scripture people who dwell in the midst of enemies. And as we've studied Matthew for many months now, we have heard angry confrontations with various people who have had differences with Jesus, who've challenged Him with questions or or come against things He has done. And they've said, well, that's not scriptural, or that's not the way I see Scripture. And He says, here is what the Scripture says. And there's this standoff, this face-off going on. Psalm 2 actually predicted how it would be. There in that notable messianic psalm, we read, the rulers of earth gather together against the Lord and His Christ. That's not something that happens just once in history. It happens throughout history. Jesus has always been a figure about whom almost nobody is neutral. There's no neutrality towards Him. Either you come to Him and you sense that here is one through whom God speaks with an absolutely unique voice and in supernatural power, or you see Him as an obstacle. You see Him as something to be gotten out of the way or gotten away from or moved around so that you can go on without Him disturbing your life. Well, in Matthew, it was the self-righteous Pharisees who usually were the enemies of Jesus. They led the charge in opposing Him. But now we meet a more varied group as we come to talk about the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. You could think, if you would, uh, it's not an exact equivalency, but think of the joint houses of Congress, perhaps, and you'd have at least an idea of the Sanhedrin. People of different parties, the ruling elite, religious leaders, but given a certain amount of political power within limits. Rome was really in charge there. It was an occupied country. And yet they were allowed to make many decisions. Now the Sanhedrin, although they were the most powerful people, did not represent every Israelite, just as you might say our congressional leaders don't always represent their citizens. And that's important to emphasize. You know, there's been much anti-Semitism over the centuries from those who who cast all Jews in a terrible light in terms of what they did towards Jesus. And there were many Israelites who loved Jesus, who loved His Word, who embraced the truth that He preached. But we do see that those in power, the legalists, the elite that ran the temple and its worship system, opposed Him and had made up their minds about Him. They didn't need a trial All they needed was some process which would allow them to deal with him as they had already determined to do, doing away with him by death. And, of course, to do that, they needed the aid of the Roman state because they could not carry out executions. It's so ironic. There's irony in everything you read from here on that these people who superficially prized the law They were dedicated to the law of God. They had before them an innocent man, but they would not rest, and they would break any law that they needed to break. From his arrest onwards, they had one goal in mind, and that was to destroy him. Certainly, 
here, as many commentators have said, is the, is the dark illustration of the true sinfulness of the human spirit when it rebels against God. Here's a ludicrous sight. Men with swords and torches coming in the middle of the night to find the one who is the light and the only light of God in this world. They couldn't capture him out there in the daylight because they feared the crowds. So they sneak around at night and seek to carry out their designs before most of the populace would be awake the next morning. We find Jesus surrounded by unfaithful friends and vicious enemies. And there are garish things here. I don't have adjectives to describe the kiss of Judas, an act of mockery. I don't have anything to to describe the foolishness of the drawing of the sword. It was Peter who drew it. Other Gospels tell us that. It may be that Matthew was protecting Peter's identity when he did not name him here. But, but this, this foolish and vain act of defense when Peter had neglected the defense of prayer that was urged upon him. And then finally, what can only be called the kangaroo court procedures that, that happened, the rushed procedures, trying to find a few witnesses who could get their act together and agree on something so that they could have a trumped-up charge against Jesus. But in the midst of it all, of all this folly and all this anger, you see the undaunted majesty of Jesus shining through. From him, I believe, we can learn how to live amidst an unfriendly society. I want to look at our text in two episodes here. First, to see the bitterness of a friend who turns against you. Secondly, the rage of those who despise everything you stand for. And then to draw a few lessons to see how Jesus is our model to respond to any human opposition we might face in our lives. To begin with, We look at verse 47 and following to see here described the bitterness of a friend who turns against you. Sometimes people ask, why was Judas Iscariot really necessary to the gospel? After all, Jesus could have been arrested many different ways. Why was it so important that there be someone like him? Our text, notice, refers to him here as Judas, one of the twelve. It never says that. You'll never find in any gospel Peter, one of the twelve, or John, one of the twelve. It isn't said that way. It's as if they need to go out of their way to point out the fact that the one who was most treacherous was one of the twelve from within the inner circle. And again, we say, here's one of those marks of realism of the Bible. Almost as if emphasis is being put on the fact that this traitor was someone handpicked by Jesus who we would see the clues evidently knew the whole time, knew when he picked him that he would do what he has done here. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus, but it was a surprise to everybody else. He was not somebody, you know, any, any movie casting director who's doing the life of Christ who, who uh, goes out and seeks the sort of sinister-looking person to be Judas, you know, the guy who's, who everybody suspects that would be wrong. He wasn't that. He was the trusted one. 
they gave him the purse. They let him collect gifts that people gave for the support of the ministry and and let him make the spending decisions. You don't do that to the person who is suspicious. But Jesus knew all along what this man was made of. The immediate need, of course, for Judas was to physically show the officials where Jesus was. Perhaps he took them first to the upper room, and finding them gone from there, he knew that they had often retreated to this olive garden, a deserted place where Jesus went to pray, and sometimes they even camped for the night. So however it came about, Judas knew the few places to look, and he had evidently agreed on the signal, the text says. He could have, now remember, he could have come and said, now, when we're in his presence, I will point to him. You you might say, why did he even have to do that? Once they visibly saw Jesus in the 12, wouldn't they know Jesus? Well, not necessarily. Remember, this is is not a day when you have TV news and photographs and and you recognize well-known people. You know, these people might have heard of Jesus but not have had a clue of what he looked like or maybe only saw him at a glance a few times. But Judas didn't take the easy signal, did he? He didn't say, I'll point him out. He said, I will go to him, and I will pay him the tribute that a disciple pays to an honored teacher. I will pay him that way of respect and homage that a lowly person shows to a higher person. I will kiss him, and then you'll know. Of course, many dramatizations have tried to ask about Judas's motive. There have been some real false theories about this. The plain fact is we don't know his motive. I, you wonder if it could have been only the money. 30 pieces of silver wasn't really that much. It certainly didn't enrich a man. It didn't give him a lifetime income or anything like that. You have to think there were deeper things going on, disappointment of some kind that Jesus wasn't what he wanted him to be, a sense that the whole movement maybe was eroding, that Jesus was not rising in power and taking over the way he had hoped, We don't know. It's all speculation if we try to figure that out, and it really doesn't matter. But perhaps God gave us such a man simply so we would have a warning, that we would never look about in the visible body of faith and say, oh, there there and there and there and there are people that I know, I absolutely know, those people could not ever fall away. Those people could not be false. In a sense... God has deliberately shaken our confidence so that we all would look deep within us and know that we are His and we are bound for eternity only as His grace works in us, not by our reputation or our outward appearance. Psalm 41.9 gives a theme as David wrote there, and we don't know who exactly he was writing about on that occasion, but he said, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted his heel against me. Whatever the reason that started Judas down this path, we know what finally took hold of him and compelled him because Luke 22 says, now Satan had entered into him and there apparently was some new level in which he had gone beyond any human power to stop 
his treachery. And so he comes and gives that kiss. I grew up in the midst of grandparents of a conservative Mennonite sect where the men practiced a New Testament injunction to share the holy kiss. It was simply an act of respect. Some of you know that some of the Anabaptist groups do that. And they would come and I would see my grandfather embrace another man and nothing strange about it. I got used to it. And that's exactly what was going on here. It's done in many countries of the world, as you know. France, they love this. But it's a mark of respect. And here, it certainly has to be understood as an act of both gross hypocrisy and even mockery as Judas' rebellion has gone this far. Have you ever had a family member or a longtime friend or a work associate turn their back on you? In the business place, many of you could think about this. No times when somebody you thought respected you, liked you, turned, and maybe for their own advantage over against yours, said something treacherous, something absolutely false about you. And you felt abandoned, you felt betrayed. You remember that feeling. It's not a good feeling at all. We need to be forewarned that Scripture tells us Christians will experience this more often than other people in the world, and not for mere business reasons, for spiritual reasons. Jesus predicted that our faith was going to cause sore divisions in families and close relationships and and even be like a sword between people. And people we thought were dear to us, people we thought we trusted, sometimes would turn on us. And the very minimum that that tells us when it happens is don't be amazed by it. It's not only the way the sinful world operates, it's the way in particular that the gospel of Christ divides people one from another. I think of David in an Old Testament scene, 2 Samuel chapter 16 is the reference when David was experiencing the revolt of his son Absalom. So there was one betrayal by a son who was young and proud and arrogant. Absalom took over the, tried to take over in the kingdom and had a considerable force, and rather than go out and fight him, David withdrew. He felt shamed, and, and there were other sins on him, so he, he felt maybe this was just the outcome of his sin, other sins and his shame. And he fled from Jerusalem, it says, with dust sprinkled on his head. In other words, in a state of repentance. And as he went, a man came out to the road, not an important person in his own right, but he's named. His name was Shimei. And Shimei ran to the roadside and didn't bow down before the king and didn't say, oh, king, I'm sorry this is happening to you. Instead, Shimei cursed the king, and he apparently picked up dirt and stones and threw them at the king. And David had warriors going with him who would have happily cut Shimei down in his tracks, and David said, no, leave him alone. It may well be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for this cursing that I receive. You see the the state of mind of David spiritually? 
He wasn't saying, this is an outrage. How dare they treat me this way? Why, who is this man who's throwing stones at me? No. He said, oh God, I'm a sinner. And you have exposed sin in me, and now I experience from my own family and my own household that which shames me. I go with a bowed head, believing that I deserve no better than this. Could we learn from that? Could we learn that maybe our posture is not to rise up so self-righteously and say, this is absolutely unfair. Why, after all I've done for that, and, and you know how it goes. Our tendency is to protest. David's tendency was to repent. Because he knew, at least prophetically speaking, what we know even better, that Christ Jesus is the only one in Scripture who is called a friend who sticks closer than any brother. And we actually could expect almost anybody to turn upon us. If we put our ultimate faith in any other human being, it's misplaced. Don't expect from men and women what you should only expect from God. That's the bitterness of a friend turning against you. But now let's move forward in this narrative into the hearing that begins with the ruling council. Notice it's not in any official hall where it should have been. It's in an informal setting where the power brokers could control the circumstances, where nobody could question why are you opening up, you know, the hearing hall in the middle of the night? That's illegal. It was happening in the home of the high priest, Joseph Caiaphas. The first of several inquests held that night. And here is the topic of Jesus facing the rage of those who despised his worldview. They despised everything that he stood for. There have been so many famous trials in history. America seems to love a trial. You could probably stop and think of some famous trials as you go back in history. The Scopes Evolution Trial in the early 20th century, the Nuremberg Trials of Nazi war criminals after World War II, the circus-like farce of O.J. Simpson's murder trial that kept millions riveted for many weeks and months. But no trial anywhere in history has had the lasting importance and fascination of the several sessions trial before Jewish and Roman authorities of Jesus of Nazareth in A.D. 30. You see, after his arrest, Jesus, for the very first time, was entirely under the control of people who hated him. People who hated him had been around before, but they hadn't been controlling him. He had been an independent agent. He determined his movements. There were times when they even tried to capture him, and he just eluded it. But now he was in their control, you could say. But why? Because he allowed himself to be in their control making it very plain to his disciples that this expression here, that he could have called 12 legions of angels. A legion in Rome was 6,000 men times 12. That's the population of the city of Lancaster. Jesus could have called 72,000, and that's not the limit, that's just a statement, 72,000 angels. Imagine that, and his cause would have triumphed 
but the plan of God would not have. And so you scan over this passage from verses 57 to 68, and I just ask you to, to realize, and it goes on beyond this passage, the, the raging passions, everything here is passionate. You know, there's nothing being done in calm deliberation like you want a legal proceeding to be. Instead, you have a desperate effort. Let's gather up these witnesses. Let's get them together, see what they have to say. And, of course, you had to have two or three who said the same thing. And that's, uh, there's almost a comic scene here. As they're trying to get these people, bringing different accusations, and, and even though they've been given bribes and they've been prompted to say things, they still can't agree. And then there's the high priest himself who should have been the model of decorum. He was put in his position because he was supposedly a man of dignity and learning. Is he calm? Does he display dignity? You, as you read about him, picture a man beat red in the face with the veins in his forehead bulging as he tries to get out of this prisoner what he will not say. And then you see the spitting and the soldier's fists slapping and slugging Jesus. This is not a neutral court. These people are passionate in their vile hatred of God and everything of God represented in Jesus Christ. We could go into a long discourse, I will not, on the trial procedures that are absolutely thrown out in this scene. Actually, the Jewish system of judgment at that time was a very good one, very close to our own in many respects. The law said that you were innocent until proven guilty. You couldn't have a a sudden trial in the middle of the night. You couldn't do this. It was an illegal trial. The accused had to have counsel. Jesus had none. No person could be forced to testify against himself. The priest, the judge, came down and asked him to take under oath something that would incriminate himself. You see, the, the, the system of justice was fair and merciful. It was designed to protect the innocent. But the system was thrown out. And this should tell us that we should not expect logic and calm and rationality when people are addressing themselves to a course of opposition to the things of God. Some of you are aware of the many books that have been written recently and sort of a resurgence of atheist authors. One of the things that's pointed out about them, and you go and test it for yourself, go to the bookstores and get the books, is that they are not calm and reasoned discourses. They just seethe with passions and they make all kinds of wild accusations and things that aren't necessarily good argumentation at all. There's a wonderful new book out, and we're going to offer it on our Read for Your Life shelf later in the summer, called The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. That is an exact opposite of this, calm, deliberate, no name-calling, no passions exerted, and speaking the truth of God. And so we come to this quiet moment when Caiaphas has been more or less raging at Jesus, and in verse 64, Jesus very calmly, very quietly says, yes, you have said it right. I am the Christ, the Son of God. And that is called blasphemy. 
The fact is, it was the only non-blasphemy that was spoken in that whole passage. But you see, it didn't matter what Jesus had done. That wasn't the issue. It was who he was. And here, this condemned man, Jesus, was the real high priest, you know. He was the high priest whose office endured forever. And the farcical man facing off with him, this infuriated Joseph Caiaphas, showed himself to be no high priest at all. Jesus faced the rage of those who despised everything he stood for. Well, what can we learn from this? What are some applications quickly this morning? One, we should ask, how is Jesus a model for our response to enemies? By the way, there's something that Matthew doesn't report, but to have a complete picture, you should insert it here. The scene in John 18, when the mob comes to the garden to arrest him, you know, Matthew doesn't tell about this. Uh, and they say, you know, we're seeking Jesus the Nazarene. And, and uh, in John 18, Jesus says, I am he. And when he said that, we read in John, they drew back and fell down to the ground. There was something majestic about him that at least momentarily stopped everybody in their tracks. And Jesus exhibits that throughout this whole scene. He is the prisoner with a calm demeanor whose majesty, you can only call it majesty, is on display even in the midst of this brutal suffering. I learned from him, first of all, that worldly opposition is never a reason to lower myself to the world's way of fighting. It was Peter, not named here, but it was Peter who drew the sword, swung it at this servant. Probably, you know, when you take somebody's ear off, I imagine it's pretty hard in the dark with a sword to say, I'm going to slice that guy's ear off. That wasn't a design. He was trying to take his head off. And he missed and only got the ear as the guy ducked. And Jesus rebuked him very strongly. And Luke tells that he even healed the ear. And then he says, those who draw the sword will die by the sword. Well, some have said, ah, here is, here is Jesus saying we should never have a weapon in our hand for any purpose of any kind, ever, ever, ever. Well, that's wrong. You have to read Scripture in its context. Jesus is saying here, if you're engaged in my kingdom and you want to fight for me, don't do it with worldly weapons. Other Scripture tells us clearly, Romans 13 says the state, the government, has a right to bear the sword, to defend the weak. And there are going to be times, and on this Memorial Day weekend, we can certainly honor the times and the people who have taken that sword from the state and have used it, hopefully, in just wars. Not every war has ever been just, for sure, but there's a time to defend the people, and that's the state's power, but that's different. The point here is that violence is not the right instrument for advancing the church of God by jihad, whether it's Christian jihad or Islamic jihad. It's just as sinful. The Crusades of the Middle Ages are possibly the darkest single blot on the Christian record in all of history. We thought we would honor Christ and go and slay Muslims. And it brought the greatest dishonor to the people of God and accomplished absolutely nothing. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. We demolish arguments 
It's truth that we fight with. And we demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the Word of God. Now, secondly, one of the ways you do that, besides prayer and besides proclaiming the truth of God, there's a remarkable way you can fight, if you will, and a lot of times with careful judgment, that is by your silence. Notice how Jesus stayed in control here by refusing to argue. He didn't argue with Caiaphas. Caiaphas got so upset because he wouldn't argue. Later on, Pilate's going to get upset the same reason. Is that what you're like? Maybe you are a person who finds it easy to stay silent when attacked. I'm not. Oh, I'm not. I can, I can write a longer letter than you wrote. I can summon more points in my argument than you had in yours. I can be a great arguer. This is a great area of my personality I've had to submit to the Lord over the years because I know that I will usually lose if I let the opponent set up the rules for the contest. The calm silence of Jesus is that which betokens his innocence, his dignity, his integrity. We must ask God to be like him in that regard. And then finally and quickly here, we don't see a short-term result of justice coming out here. Jesus didn't suddenly escape and get vindicated, of course, but God's long-term justice is vindicated. First Peter 2.23 tells us, when Jesus stood before these enemies, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And then this wonderful sentence, instead, He trusted himself to him who judges justly. And you know what? He won the argument. He didn't win it right then and there, but triumphantly on the morning of resurrection, he won the argument. And one day, and he tells them here that he's going to appear as the Son of Man on the right hand of the Mighty One, and believe me, then he's going to win the argument. Our God can sovereignly use even good friends who turn against us. And times when evil seems to crush us down to the ground. Because in Psalm 22, he promises this. The Lord has not despised or disdained the suffering of his afflicted one. He listens to his cry for help. And when the Lord listens, you can be sure. He also acts. Our Father, teach us to live amid hostility, opposition, mockery, betrayal. Nothing we face will be that that Jesus faced. But Father, you have wonderfully shown us that your cause will be vindicated and your innocent ones will be protected by you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.